we are going to jump back into the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Ian handled the last couple weeks uh, dealing with that unbelievable, uh, gracious offer uh, that Jesus puts forth on prayer, ask, seek, and knock, uh, the goodness of the Father, the, the fact that he's speaking to his disciples and he says, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? That incredible emphasis, uh, less on what we do, but more on what is available to us and what we often actually miss out on because we don't recognize how good God's graciousness toward us is and the invitation to be in relationship with Him. And then last week, Ian focused in on uh, what is traditionally called the golden rule, uh, the most well-known thing that Jesus said, treat others as you yourself would want to be treated. There is no, uh, no statement like that in any other world religion. There is the opposite of that. Uh, in uh, the Confucius faith, the, the opposite statement is, don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. The negative is applied. But the positive being applied by Jesus is a call to a sanctified imagination of living an other-oriented life that the fulfillment of the law is wrapped up in the word love, which is super important for us to understand uh, the warnings that we're going to move into now as Jesus begins to wrap up his sermon. And we're going to go into a series of warnings. Uh, and today we are going to consider the first warning, which is the call to the way of life versus the way of destruction. That there are two gates and that there are two paths and that there is a choice that is before us and we must ask the question, which gate have I entered in and which path am I on? And I also want to ask the question, is this simply a statement about uh, who's saved and who's lost? Is this simply a commentary on heaven and hell, the one-time act of faith that makes one born again, regenerate, who trusts in the work of Jesus? Uh, and then, hey, you're, you've gone through the right gate and you're on the right path. Um, or is it possible that this is a text that, yes, speaks to the the exclusive claims of Christ and what it means to follow him and to be identified with him, but isn't it also a text that deals with discipleship because every Christian has the ability to be on a broad path that brings destruction. I don't know about you, but as narrow as the path of Jesus is, uh, and because the gospel is a gospel of freedom, is that the more freedom I receive from Christ, the greater the possibility of me making an absolute disaster of that freedom. And if that wasn't so, then Paul would never say, for freedom you have been set free, therefore do not use your freedom to serve the flesh. He would not command that unless that was a real possibility. And so I want to just state out of uh, here at the very beginning, I don't want to say out of the gate because then it's confusing because we're talking about gates, uh, is that this is not a simple statement about who's saved and who's lost. This is a call to the disciple to recognize the responsibility 
of a daily identification and surrender to King Jesus, that, and that is the narrow path, and the difficulty is continually living out that life of the good death. I'm dying to my right to be the person that I want to be, which is the broad path that leads to destruction, and I am surrendering to the exclusive claims of Jesus as Lord over every arena of my existence. And the fact is, is that the old man, the old woman, has the ability to jump off that narrow path and get right back. It, as Chesterton wisely said, if there is one way to go, then there's a thousand ways to fall. And I think that's a very important <laughs> distinction and, and a right one for us to understand. Jesus in creating the narrow gate, how narrow is it? As narrow as could be defined by him because it's not a gate, it's him himself. And this is where I wanna begin because I believe that this warning, the way of life versus the way of destruction is wrapped up in one of the most offensive uh, statements that Christians can make and it causes so much disdain within the world and often even offends our hearts as believers because it speaks to the exclusivity of Christ's claims. And I want to just begin. There are two passages in John. John chapter 10, uh, verses 7 through 10. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now He says he's the good shepherd, but he also says I'm the door. I'm the gatekeeper. I am the protector of the sheep that are within the pen. And I know my sheep, and they have come through me. And what does he go and say? He goes, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. By the way, I, in my book I address this, this topic that the thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy, but I have come that they, he's speaking of his sheep in its proper context, but one of the things that I point out based upon the thief on the cross is the thief on the cross tells us that all sheep were once thieves and that thieves have the ability to become sheep. And the great principle of the Sermon on the Mount is it is meant, if I was to take Luther's understanding of it, uh, which is it is meant to lead us to a place of recognizing our own inability to live up to the standard that Jesus demands, but it shouldn't cause us to fall into a place of despair. What it should cause us to do is to cast ourselves in independence upon that Jesus who demands, who becomes the fulfillment of those things through us as we surrender to him daily. And nothing takes greater effort and nothing is more difficult than surrender. Nothing. Jesus says, I'm the door. And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. She will be saved. The invitation is always, come to Jesus. Look to Jesus. But the fact is, is that we live in a city in a pluralistic age. We're not in a less, we're not in a less religious age. We're actually in an unbelievably religious age. Uh, not even necessarily spiritual, but religion is our attempts, human attempts, 
to bring ultimate meaning to life, to find, find a purpose for existence. In a humanistic age, the, the secular religion is wrapped up in the priests and prophets of the modern day. They're the influencers on our social media. They're the celebrities in our, on our televisions and in our movies. They're our musicians uh, that make the music in which we create an abundance of, of, of idols uh, and things that we follow to bring meaning and value to our lives. And if we understand that this religious age uh, is, 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 is focused this way, that we are called as Christians to have a vertical vision of existence, that we believe that we are created beings and that the Creator, God Himself, who spoke in the universe, leapt into existence, has created us in His image, and that image, though it is marred, is meant to, to allow us to enter into right relationship with Him, with others, and then and only then with ourselves. The religion of the modern age is that God is found within yourself. And all of the raw materials necessary for finding ultimate fulfillment will be found within the human ego itself. It is the absolute uh, elevation of the human experience apart from God. It is the age of the individual. And as I've shared before, individual is a word that actually has very little place in the Christian faith because we are not driven by individualism, which is my uniqueness defined apart from, my, apart from others. Uh, I am a person made in the image of a God who is one God, three persons. And personhood is very different than being an individual. A person is one whose uniqueness is discovered in their relationship to others. In fact, I would argue you cannot discover who it is that you are meant to be apart from relationship with others, which is why we are stuck at this, this bleak standstill and why so many people struggle to be happy. There's an incredible TV show that just came out um, on Netflix. Um, uh, if you uh, don't like to feel super tense, don't watch the show. I think some of the language in it's pretty racy, but it's called Beef. Have you guys heard of this? And Beef is like, the premise is, is these, these two individuals, a guy who's down on his luck and can't seem to get his, his life together and, and can't seem to make enough money to live and he lives with his kind of deadbeat brother who just wants to play video games and try to get bitcoins and the brother was running like a failing like janitorial you know handyman business and and there's a woman who is extremely successful very wealthy has the picture perfect family uh, and everything that one could want from life but neither of these two individuals are happy. And what I think is so profound about this, about this show is that you can get your head around the man's emptiness, but it's hard to get your head around her emptiness. But that's what I actually think is so genius about the show, is that, is that it doesn't matter whether you're a have or a have not, that there is something ultimately that leads to a dissatisfaction when self is the central means by which understanding and meaning is drawn from life. And the whole premise of the show is that she pulls behind him when he's gonna back up 
and, and it sparks a road rage in which he chases her and she flips him off and then they just start going after each other doing one terrible thing to another to get even. It's all about the scapegoat mechanism. It's all about, it's all about the hyper-victimization. But the thing that I thought was so profound that speaks so fully to our particular age and how broad the path of destruction is and how many go in by it because I think that the broad path of destruction is the broad path of I am my own God, I create my own way, I, I choose, I will choose my path and because there's no meaning found in there, the only way that they can find meaning or excitement in life is by making the other pay for some, some, uh, some false thing that they think has been done to them by the universe. And so their whole existence is driven by just vengeance because at least vengeance makes them feel alive. And I think that this is one of the saddest things about modern man is that the idea that we are our own gods has not led to any kind of sustainable or tangible happiness. It definitely has not provided a means by which I'm like, yes, I'm going to do this. Uh, there's n I've not been compelled by any system. I've not found a social media influencer that I, that's turned out to be the appropriate prophet or uh, or priestess um, to help me become all that I want to be because it seems like all those people that are offering that to me are the only ones actually benefiting from me believing them because all they're getting is my money and this is often the accusation of the church but what Christ offers is something totally different and this is why I want us to understand that he is the door and those exclusive statements are not ones that can be ignored. Look what he says in John 14, verses 67. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Religion is a way, a series of things that one does to find their completeness. Christianity is a person. Jesus is himself the way. Truth is not a body of information that we learn but truth is the person of Christ who is known and known intimately. In fact, what we will see is the most terrifying warning in this, in this text is not all those people out there uh, that, uh, that blatantly reject the gospel. The most terrifying warnings that come in Scripture are to those that think that they're okay when in actuality they, they do not know the Jesus who saved them because they believe that their salvation is based upon what they have done rather than what God has done for them. This is why Jesus says, many will come to me and say, did I not do this or that in your name? He doesn't say, many will come to me and say, I never even heard of you, Jesus. That's not who he's, that's not who he's hammering on. He hammers on the people that actually call him Lord, but actually do not know him. And it's because, and he says, when I says, I don't know you, remember, every time Jesus says, I don't know you, he's not saying, I don't know you, because he knows every person and who he intended them to be. But when we choose to be our own gods, we are choosing an illusion. And when Jesus says, I don't know you, essentially is what he's saying is, I don't know the you, you that you have chosen to be. I don't know the person that I'm talking to because this is not what I intended when I created you. You have chosen an illusion and that illusion will not lead to life, it leads to destruction. And so Jesus says, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is a principle 
that we need to grab a hold of and understand. If you guys, um, uh, fam- many of you familiarize yourselves with the work of Frank Lloyd Wright, the great architect. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright was a genius. And if you see his houses, you always think that they were built in the, in like the 50s or 60s. Uh, but, he was, but all the homes that look like mid-century modern and, and much of what we call modern architecture today, he was building back in like 1910. 1920 and he was so ahead of his time but one of his favorite uh, favorite architectural styles that he really developed and kind of kind of brought to its ultimate expression is what's called compression and release and I think that this is a picture for me of the narrowness of our message how narrow is our message well we definitely aren't driving around with coexist stickers So we're not saying that all paths, I will say that all paths ultimately will lead to the feet of Jesus, but they don't all lead there with the same results. There is a day when every knee will bow to Jesus as Lord. That doesn't mean every person will be saved. It just means that ultimately there is no escaping, that everything is ultimately going to lead us to this reality. It has been appointed for once for a person to die and then the judgment. That's reality. So the narrowness of our message is a compression reality. In Frank Lloyd Wright's houses, when he uses compression and release, the idea is to bring you into the most restrictive, think of like Alice in Wonderland when she goes into the room where all of a sudden she can't get through the doorway. She has to, she has to I don't remember if it was the cake that made her small or the drink that made her small, but anyway, you know my point. Like she has to get down small and like to get through into the space before it opens up. Uh, it's the same thing, you guys ever see Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory? The, uh, uh, the original, because that's the only one worth seeing, because the other one is terrible, and Johnny Depp is terrifying in it. Um, I, I mean, who's going to beat Gene Wilder? You shouldn't even mess with that. Um, but you know, when before they go into the room, they, they get in there, they're like, the room is, the hallway is getting smaller, Mr. Wonka, um, and it keeps getting smaller, and they can't move, and then he does, he plays a little note, it's like, and it's like Rachmaninoff, remember that one? And then the door opens and it opens up into this factory. Compression and expansion. A narrowness squeezed down. There's, this is the way, it's one person at a time through into the vastness. The narrowness of our message is what opens us up to the vastness of God's love is my point. And one of the things that Lloyd Wright understood is that when you compress people into, his, into these homes, that, that the goal was that when you came into the main space, it would open you up to a sense of wonder how expansive a thing can be even with walls and so it's a very beautiful picture but I think of this the narrowness of our message uh, is actually what gives me the confidence that if all paths lead ultimately to God then that is to say that God is not actually knowable because all gods are ultimately one angle of the same God and therefore God is not actually knowable the other issue for me is that if Jesus is the door and any key open that door then your house is not safe. <laughs> that there is actually something to this, that God is personal and God created us in his image and God wants to be known, then he has to be someone that can be known. And if God has chosen to reveal himself to us through his son, and he says that there is no other name under heaven by which one can be saved, then we need to understand that this exclusivity is not something we can escape, but we also hold tenaciously that the exclusivity of 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 the claims of Jesus is also an invitation 
that is inclusive and invites all people to come to him who are weary and to find rest. So don't think that it's about a small group that's in and a large group that's out. It's not how God works. And I think that it's dangerous to turn this text into statistics. I think it's much more important to turn it into this realization that not many people stay on the path of discipleship. And that even as Christians, a vast majority of Christians are marked by wilderness living rather than the promised land. They're God's people. They got just enough, enough faith to get out of Egypt into the wilderness, but not enough faith to get out of the wilderness into the promised land. And this is not where we need to live. And this is why I think it is important for us to understand this principle on a daily basis, not just this, it was a one, well, I'm saved, therefore this passage no longer applies to me. That's not how it works. Okay, let's move into it. There's only two slides we're going to look at. The first is this. In verse 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate. So, there's the command. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate. Who is Jesus speaking to? Is he speaking to the crowds? Well, we know that there are crowds around him at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It says, he, When he was finished speaking, the crowds were amazed, for he spoke as one who had authority. But that's not what we were told in the beginning of chapter 5. And it's very important if we're going to understand the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, we need to understand who the Sermon on the Mount was intended for. And the Sermon on the Mount was not intended for the crowds, it was intended for the disciples. It says, when he saw the multitudes, he went up on a hill, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying. And what I always point out is that when people gather around the person of Jesus, disciples gather around Jesus, that is, people who have left all to orient their existence around King Jesus, it naturally becomes a draw for those that do not yet know Jesus. The means by which Jesus expands his kingdom is through his people that gather around him. You and I are the conduits by which we have to ask the question, are our lives so oriented around Jesus that others are drawn to that reality? Is Jesus being lifted up in our community? Is if Jesus is lifted up, then we can trust that he will draw people to himself through us, his people that have gathered around him. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And he says to his disciples in these closing warnings, he says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. There's a parallel passage in Luke, in Luke 13, verses 23 and 24. And it says, and someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? He doesn't answer that question and I think that this is important he the cleverness kind of like Job asking God questions what he answers them notice they want to know who's in and who's out are we a part of the lucky few is kind of the question are we a part of the frozen chosen <laughs> are, are we in the in are we in the inner ring and and most people are going to be on the outer ring is that the reality Jesus notice what he says does he answer what they want to know is, tell us who else is going to be in. And all he focuses in on is, you should make sure that you're in. Why are you worried about that? He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock on the door, saying, Lord, open to us, and he will answer, I do not know where you came from. And he goes on once again, I do not know you. And he, the, in Luke's passage, it connects what is the, next week's 
uh, what is the next couple weeks within the warnings that many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord. Once again, people that think they know Jesus and Jesus says, do you know me? Or have you just been living in your own strength for me? And so he doesn't answer the question of how many are saved. I don't believe that you can take this passage and say that hell will be far more full than heaven. Wouldn't it, would it, a, a presumptuous thing to assume when we're told in Revelation that there will be tongues from every tribe, tribe around the throne of God and it's not our concern of, of how many will be saved. What our concern is is that the narrowness of what Jesus is saying is that I have chosen you so that through you I can reach all. And so what does he go on to say here? He says, he says listen, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. So we say, okay, so many people enter into a life that leads to destruction. Now it is true that there are those that are lost and their lives wreak destruction because they have not been regenerated. They have not put their faith in Christ. Wonderful. That's easy to define. There's, there, you either have put your faith in Jesus or you haven't put your faith in Jesus. You reject Jesus, then, then the fact is, is that no matter what benefits you experience in your life at this current time, that there is a point where whatever benefits you have gathered from existence, it will not be enough to ultimately sustain the fact that you must die like everybody else and that if we are right and there is a God who created you for His purposes and you reject that God, then what is there for you? That's a reality. However, I think that this text, when we apply it to disciples, is a far more helpful grid than simply thinking about who's saved and who's not saved. Because what I think is more important is to think about how we as children of God often get on the path of destruction and consistently choose what I call the gate without restraint. I'm going to enter however I want to enter. And the path that you choose is the path of least resistance. And ultimately, it leads to the law of diminishing returns. Think about the ways that we choose the path of destruction every day. How often do we choose as followers of Jesus? Now, salvation is, is so simple, so easy. I'm so absolutely unwilling to front load or back load the gospel. There isn't, this, there isn't a, a law, the law of grace is this. Everything that needs to be done has been done by Jesus. Will you say yes to his yes or will you say no to his yes? It's a fascinating question. You don't see names added to the book of life in Scripture. You do see names removed. The question is, is will we say no to his yes over our lives? That's a real possibility. But if we say yes to him, is it also not a possibility that as his children, we have moments where we still say no? We do it all the time. Think about the ways that you say no. You know you shouldn't do this but you do it anyway because no one's looking, even though you know in the depth of your being that ultimately everything you do is seen. And what it really boils down to is it's a revelation of unbelief um, and unbelief and rebellion. I'm, not, I'm, I'm choosing in this moment to not believe 
that everything I do and everything that I think actually matters and has cause and effect and actually plays in, uh, it, it is actually playing, paying forward toward an eternal reality. We don't live with an eternal perspective. Most of us are able to put out of our heads that one day we will face the living God. And this is why it is possible as a Christian, you can wake up the most fervent believer by mid-afternoon, you know, you're, you're, you're being, you're, you're like a liberal believer, and then, you know, by 5 p.m., you're conservative, and then by bedtime, you're an atheist because that's the fickleness of the human heart and why it is that we so desperately need not only God, but God has given us the gift of one another. And this is why so many Christians went completely into the garbage when COVID hit and they were isolated from one another because all of a sudden they were left. It was just them and God and me alone without the wisdom and the care of the, my church family reminding me that I am beloved in Christ is not enough to sustain me. If I, I can't sustain that on my own, I need to be reminded all the time by Darcy, you are loved, by my elders, by my staff, that God is using you in spite of you. I need their corrective hand. You mishandled this. You didn't do this right. All of those things that come out of the context of a community that truly loves me. But this is how you stay on the narrow path. And why is it so difficult? Because the difficulty lies in the ways that it, it lays you naked before God and before others. Because there is no being on the narrow path without humility. And humility requires a vulnerability and a transparency that allows the light of Christ to shine into the dark areas of our lives that continually get us and bring us off the narrow path back onto that broad path of destruction. And I want to just give you an example. How many Christians who legitimately love Jesus have done incredible things in the name of Jesus, had unbelievably fruitful ministries, but then we discover that they had a duplicitous life? How many pastors have affairs? It's so many more than you even dare imagine. And it's a terrifying reality because it shows the the danger of power, especially in our celebrity age where the church has modeled the world far more than it models the Bible in its attempts to create celebrity pastors where congregations come to watch the celebrity entertain them. Uh, a community of faith that's apostolic is a rare thing these days. Uh, but the fact is, is that the moment we lift up men and women and we put them on a pedestal and we tell them that the greatest thing that you've ever heard or seen or the smartest person, do you know how many times Rabbi Zacharias was told he was brilliant? Probably more than he should have heard. And do I believe that he knew Jesus? I have no reason to believe that he didn't know Jesus. But I also have reason to believe that he chose to hide sin, which led to duplicity, which put him on a broad path. And the ministry has now marked by that broad path and its mixture. And it's once again one of the ways in which the world can say, look at you Christians, you hypocrites. You say don't do this when all along your leaders are doing all the terrible things that you preach against constantly. Instead of humility being the mark of the, the pulpit and the recognition that we are broken and that without Jesus we are all lost. And the goodness of the Gospel is that God loves us in spite of our brokenness. And the thing that inspires actual transformation and brings about real discipleship is the actual surrender 
to Jesus' lordship over our lives, but that's a daily surrender. And the fact is, is that there are going to be times when you hold tenaciously onto what you believe are your rights, and it will wreak havoc. Every time I've, I've, I can tell you the, the ways that I've gotten on the broad path, even in leading Dwarf Hope, the, the most terrifying thing that puts me on a broad path of destruction is doing Christian things with the wrong motivation. Jesus, look how much I read this week. Look, look, how, look how committed I am to your scriptures. Uh, look how faithful I am to, to give regularly. All of a sudden, the things that I should be doing out of just the joy and the generosity that has come to me in Christ now is becoming the very means by which I am defining my own self-worth. And my self-worth is defined by what I do for Jesus. And now what I do for Jesus is the very thing that puts me on a broad path that leads to destruction because I'm not doing it for Jesus because I know Jesus. I'm doing it to prove to a Jesus I don't know that I'm worth loving and I'm worth saving. And this is the very thing that he warns against. So don't think that the broad path of destruction is when you stop doing Christian things and start doing secular things. Because I promise you, you can do lots of Christian things that keep you on a broad path. And this isn't to create fear around doing good or versus doing bad. We should do what is right before us. And each day, there, is, there are a series of decisions that we make. And every decision we make puts into motion cause and effect. It's an actual law. So let me give you an example of the path that leads to destruction and there is sin, as it says in 1 John, that leads to death. We always want to apply these passages to, to, um, uh, to eternal realities. There is sin that leads to death. Well, that means that there is sin that leads someone to hell. Well, of course, but that's not what it's saying. It's that I think there is literally sins that when we as Christians actually play with fire, we are putting our very physical lives at risk. And if you don't believe me, read 1 Corinthians Paul actually says that there were people in the church that were dying, were being actually divinely judged in dying because of how they were handling communion. A supernatural judgment. Ananias and Sapphira, I don't think for a second that they weren't Christians. They were Christians and they were judged. There was judgment. Doesn't mean that they lost their souls, but it definitely means that, they, that their life their life was forfeited by their decision. I met a girl once in Russia who had been radically saved, radically saved. And she was on fire and she was charismatic and she was my translator um, and when we went to Smolensk. And I went back a year later and literally the week before I got there, she, before she got saved, she had been a heroin addict. She got radically saved sobered up, hadn't touched anything, went to the Bible school in Moscow that Calvary Chapel had started, was a leader among leaders, and she had a tragic moment where a family member died. She went into a dark place. She went home to visit friends uh, for the memorial, and she went out with a group of friends who talked her into trying heroin again, and it killed her instantly. Do I think that she wasn't saved? No, I think she absolutely knew Jesus and she made a decision that was a broad path to destruction, destruction so severe that it, that it cost her her physical life. But I don't think it cost her her soul. We're too quick to apply. In the, in the book of Exodus, when you see the children of Israel judged in the wilderness, do you think that because the earth opened up and swallowed the sons of Korah, they went to hell? It doesn't say that. It just says they were judged. 
They were already God's people. They were slaves. They were God's chosen people. God never abandoned them, even though they were consistently turning to idolatry. They were rebelling. They were complaining. But God stayed with them, burning fire at night, the cloud by day, his presence available. He gets mad. Moses even stands in the gap and even asks God to not forget his covenant promise to his people. And he does. But what, does, what happens? That whole first generation never was able to enter the promised land, including Moses. If Moses wasn't allowed to enter into the promised land, are we saying that Moses wasn't saved? No. Moses one of the greatest figures in the Old Testament. Moses appears in the Mount of Transfiguration uh, with Elijah. So, I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a reality that Moses representing the law, he is God's friend. David, with all that he did, Bathsheba, murder, family havoc, sin wreaked havoc, all of those things, I would argue, are people getting off of the narrow path and getting onto the broad path. Why was Moses not allowed into the will into the promised land because he struck the rock three times when God did not tell him to do that. In other words, Moses in that moment played God. He allowed his own anger and his own judgment to be what was dominant. And God says, you know what? No, you don't get to go in. You're functioning in unbelief. You're functioning in rebellion. You don't, you don't get, you get to give them the law that other people get to practice, <laughs> but you don't get to go in. And you think, is that cruel? Well, that's the reality of cause and effect. It's not about salvation in these situations. It's about real decisions that we make that impact the effectiveness of our witness in the moment. This is why I think it is so important for us to understand that the broad path of destruction is so wide and it has no parameters. It is anarchy. And that is what our world is putting forth. But don't think we as Christians are immune to living with an, with an anarchy streak. In other words, every time you decide for yourself what is right and what is wrong, every time you define your own terms for your existence, you are choosing to be your own God. And this is why it is so broad, why, why we, so many go in through it. I think it would even be more accurate to say everybody goes, goes in by it at times. The question is, is what can we do as disciples of Jesus? And this is why he says this, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. I think the path of least resistance, isn't it funny that, think about the industry, even of, of physical fitness industry, how many magic formulas and systems there are out there touting you never have to work out to get, like, you ever, you ever see those, like, you ever see the ads for like, you can get a six pack without doing anything. You just have to buy this electric belt that you wear around your waist. Have you, do you guys remember those? So Darcy and I wanted to win um, with a six pack without earning a six pack. So I ordered one of those electricity belts. And in the advertisement, uh, I'm wearing it right now. It's amazing. It hurts, um, but it makes me preach with vigor. Um, no, we saw the ad and it was like, Darcy and I watched it and we both were like, it looks legit. And the, the woman's doing dishes 
So like you can, you can do dishes and wear it and it just makes your muscles contract. You're gonna get a six pack. And I was like, sweet. So we get it. I put it on to do the, and there was like settings for it. And I put it on and I literally walked up to the counter like joking, like I'm gonna do dishes. And then I turned it on, it was like, like every time it hit me, it would kill me. I'm like, there's no stinking way that you can do this. All this is is torture. It's actually physical torture device. It was like, I'm like, try it. I like tried on my leg. It would like make my leg like shoot out. Like, there, like this does not work. Uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a total gimmick because anything that promises that you can achieve some outrageous goal without trying is, is a lie. It's a lie. You, we know that. And yet people still spend millions and millions of dollars on, on every stinking diet pill. Every, we just buy into anything. Anything to prevent us from, uh, to keep us from having to do the actual hard work that is necessary uh, to actually learn anything of any value to engage. The, what is the most difficult pleasure in life? Human relationships. And what is the most difficult thing for us to maintain? Human relationships. And if it's hard for us to maintain human relationships, how much harder is it for us to maintain a divine relationship with the creator of the universe? Listen, it, it's, it's easy enough that God has come down to us, but the difficulty is in remembering to look up, of disciplining ourselves toward what I call a sacramental caste the ability to see God's hand in everything. To look at things with a, with, with, a, with a sacred vision. You know, as parents, I was talking with Darcy about this like 17-year-old daughter, and you know, when your kids are in high school, you want to you talk to them like, man, please, there's a reason why Scripture encourages abstinence. There's a reason why Scripture says don't mess around with sex outside of marriage because your mom and I, we understand the the pain that comes from promiscuity. We understand the, 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 the consequences of those things. And so we spiritualize something like that because that's so terrifying to us. But what if instead we actually approached our kids and I sat down with Hattie the other night at dinner and, I, and instead of focusing in on don't do this, what I said, what if you actually began to look at life and everything you do, whether it's school, whether it's your friendships, whether it's a boyfriend, whether it's dreams about the future, whether it's the chores that you do at home, what if you actually looked at those things with the belief that there is a sacred order, a, a spiritual order behind these things, and that what we do in our physical world actually has impact and is intersecting with a spiritual reality as well, and that everything we do has a spiritual component to it, and that, that what I mean by that is that there is nothing that you do that doesn't have divine significance. And when we begin to actually look, we, we overemphasize spirituality on some things, which creates a don't touch, don't taste kind of mentality law. But if we actually say, because of Jesus and my identity is in Him, I have the ability to see that everything is sacred. Everything has a sacred order. Everything has a spiritual reality to it. We can't diminish the sacred from the secular. The sacred is found in the midst of a secular world that is under the sway of the wicked one. And we fall under that sway too. Our discipline, the difficulty is, is this. The path of difficulty 
is that nothing is harder than, than attuning your mind to hear the still, soft voice of God. Nothing is harder than defining the gaze of faith upon a saving God. Nothing is harder than to allow Jesus to be Jesus in us and through us and for us. For this is what faith is. It allows the Holy Spirit to reproduce the living Christ in and through our lives. But the difficulty is in laying down and saying, Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done. It's being walked up to a precipice, but it can be an adventure. And here's the path of difficulty. The gate of precision is that Jesus says, I'm the way. And what we need is a Christological center. What we need to understand is that there is no getting around Jesus. People say, I'm okay with God, but I have issues with Jesus. No, everything hinges upon Jesus because there is no God behind the back of Jesus. But most importantly is this. The path of difficulty... The difficulty of engaging and investing in real relationship with a real God because the thing that we don't want to hear is, I never knew you. And the only way to know God is to surrender the illusion of what God did not intend for you so that He can actually make you the living conduit by which you can actually enter into communion with Him. The good news about grace is that His mercies are new every day. And He understands how frail we are. He understands how, how quickly we can get on the broad path of destruction. Keep in mind, He's telling His very disciples, what did Peter do the night of His betrayal? He denied Him three times. What did Peter do after Jesus showed Himself resurrected from the dead? He got discouraged and He went back to fishing. Look at the ways, look at the impulsiveness of Peter. Even after Pentecost, when Peter receives the power of the Spirit and preaches the most powerful sermon, it's not that long after that within the Jewish council, he becomes intimidated by the Christian Jews and actually moves back to law in which Paul had to publicly stand against him for being the hypocrite. All of those things, none of that is narrow path living, friends. Which is why it is difficult to stay on the narrow path. But here is the paradox. The gift of paradox is this. Nothing is more difficult than the painfulness of destruction. It may be easy to get to the point of destruction, but nothing is more, nothing is more difficult than to climb your way out of that kind of mess. To try, to try to pick up the pieces. You can be forgiven, but we can't stop cause and effect. You can murder someone and be a believer in Jesus, but you're still going to probably spend the rest of your life in prison, or maybe worse, get the death sentence. Doesn't mean that you're not saved, but cause and effect you have put into motion. And this is where the broad path, it was so easy to get here, but it is not so easy to get out of. Where the difficult path, the narrow path, is actually what opens us up to the broadest experience of joy. Now, it's so interesting that he says the, the gate is narrow. It's precise. I'm the gate. The path, he says, is difficult. And there, there, it, that leads to life. And there are few. Those who find it are few. And I think of this. This is where I believe is the catch of Christian history. 
is that I think the vast majority of Christians throughout Christian history, I don't believe that when Jesus says many are called, few are chosen, that that's speaking of, of who's saved and who's not saved. I think chosen, to be chosen, how I apply the logic of election is election is a task that is given. Jesus said to his disciples, I have chosen you, you did not choose me. What did he choose them for? He didn't say, I chose you and rejected everyone else. He said, I chose you, now go and make disciples in, in all the world. So the, the few that Jesus chooses, there's a few of us here, but the few of us here have the ability to make an incredible impact on many. So yes, few surrender all to follow Jesus. And even historically, the church has been carried on the shoulders of a few faithful. I don't think that means that there's only a few that are saved, but I think that there are a lot of Christians that live their entire Christian lives in the wilderness. Because I don't think the promised land is a picture of heaven. I think the promised land is a picture of the saving life of Christ right now. The saving life of Christ right now. Because the promised land is where the battles happen. The wilderness is where nothing happens. It's a place of looking back to life before Jesus and saying, I wish I had the things that I was doing before because you haven't, you forgot that following God isn't, isn't about your personal happiness. In fact, your satisfaction and your joy is when you begin to participate in His plans. But if you think that God is going to save you, but your plans are still the, the, the primary thing that you're focused on, you're not going to get off that broad path in a way that's going to actually bring any sort of significance to the lives of others. And this is why we have to ask the question is, am I Christ-oriented, which leads me to an other-oriented vision of, of life, which brings us back. The difficult path, the narrow gate, is all wrapped up in that golden rule. One word, and it's love. Not the love as defined by the world, but love, agape. The self-giving love of God that comes to us not because we're lovable, but because it's His nature to do so. He wants to love in us and through us with that same love. And that, my friends, nothing is more challenging. You can, you can, be, you can be a voracious Bible reader. You can be absolutely, you, dot your T, you cross your T's, you dot your I's, you, uh, you are, you're orthodox and everything. You take seriously, you know, the Sabbath. You don't swear, you don't sleep around, but you're not nice. And you sit around and you judge others. I promise you, that is a more dangerous picture of the broad path than I love Jesus and I struggle with heroin. You're like, well, you, when you're on heroin, you're on the broad path. Well, yeah, that's really, that's just very simple. Uh, but man, it's way more terrifying to think that you're on the right path when in actuality, you know as well as Jesus knows that you are still in control of your life. And as long as you are in control of your life, you are living an illusion that Jesus knows nothing about. And that is a terrifying reality. And this is why the narrow path is so narrow. But here's, here's the good news about it, is that when we get on that narrow path, which is all about abiding in Jesus, look what he says in Matthew 11. He just got done telling us that the gate's narrow, the path is difficult, it's hard, it's, it's hard to find, uh, it, it, it's, it's difficult to tread, but then he goes, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. 
And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We close with this simple statement. That yes, following Jesus is to go against the flow of human civilization. Malcolm Muggeridge said only dead fish swim with the, the current. Living fish swim against the current. And we don't want to be, we are alive. And Jesus says, whoever the Son of Man says free shall be free indeed. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. Abundant life comes out of the difficult pleasure of surrender to Jesus. And the abundant life is this. It is actually the promise of rest in the midst of the difficulty. It's not the removal of the difficulty. It is the promise of help as we tread the difficult path. Jesus is the path. He is the gate. He is the goal at the end of the path. He is the nourishment on the path. And He is the guide by His Spirit as we sojourn along that path. He is also the Good Shepherd who leaves the 99 every time we fall off the stinking path. And when we realize that, what we realize is that there is something easy, but it is the easiness that comes from the full offer of Jesus' presence by His Spirit in our lives that is so offensive and what we so quickly turn away from is I don't want God to be the one working in and through me because that would mean that it's not me. Well, the fact is, is that you won't learn who you are until God is working in and through you. And this comes to this. I have died with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who now lives in me. Living by those words is as narrow as you can get. There is nothing more difficult but there is also nothing more rewarding. And this is what brings us into the promised land and gets us out of the wilderness because the promised land is where the battles happen. And if we want to enter into the battle of seeing lives saved in the city of Portland, then we better begin to understand what victorious Christian living is because living in the wilderness is not going to make us very useful for bringing the light of the gospel to a city as dark as Portland. Are we participating on following hard after the Jesus who says, come to me, come through me, and I will walk with you and in you, and I will empower you to be a conduit of my love to a place that I died for. But the question is, is will we surrender in such a way that his life can be seen in and through us? And are we willing to count the cost? Because it's costly, it's hard. There's nothing more difficult than surrendering to Jesus and also nothing more rewarding. And I would say it's well worth the adventure. It's well worth the adventure. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your gospel. May we take your yoke upon us right now. Lord, we want to be a people that know you. And I pray right now that for those sitting here that's like, I put my faith in Jesus, but I, 
I, I, I recognize that I continue to do things that put me on the broad path of destruction. I'm not experiencing the fullness of Christ's life because there's still uh, a radical uh, independence in my life that is preventing me from knowing the fullness of Jesus. If that's you, I just encourage you right now, just where you're at, just to pray, Jesus, I surrender to you. Surrender my life to you. I just ask that by your spirit, you would forgive me for the ways that I continue to take control of my own life without even taking into consideration what it is that you would have for me. And Lord, for those that maybe haven't even begun the journey with you, that have never even entered in through the gate, Jesus, you said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And as you have been lifted up today, you are the way, the truth, and the life. You are our only hope. You are God come down to us into the midst of our brokenness. And you have dealt with sin and the dominions of darkness once and for all through your atoning work on the cross. That you rose from the dead because death could not keep you. And Lord, we have put our faith in you, have tasted your life. I pray for anyone that has not trusted in you that they would just simply pray those words, Jesus is Lord. For it says that whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. Lord, I pray that some today would begin that journey along the narrow path which is literally walking in you, with you, and following hard after you. And those who have been on the path but have gotten off of it, like the prodigal son and daughter, I pray that you would just simply call them home. But in all in all, I pray that you would be glorified, you would be lifted up. Thank you that you have made a way for us. And that way of salvation is not built upon what we do for you, but it is what you have already done for us. And for that, we are grateful. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.